Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good evening again, and welcome to Bridge Church, and you have joined us on a, in a series, we've been on the journey through the book of Ephesians. And the key theme of that book is this idea of identity. And the apostle Paul has walked us through this aspect of what it means for us spiritually to be created in the image of God, every single human being on this earth. And what it means for us to not only be created, but to be restored and have that sense of relationship. And, and, and then we turned the corner last week and looked at how that individual spiritual relationship as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to the life and work of Jesus Christ and what he did to restore us to relationship with God, that it has ethical, spiritual, social implications. That we are no longer slaves and we are no longer strangers to each other. So that's what we talked about last week. Well, as we continue on, we're going to, Ephesians takes this amazing pivot and turn in chapter four. And so the theme that we're going to look at and explore, because it's the theme of the passage, is living worthy of our identity. Living worthy of our identity. You see, what the Apostle Paul does in his writings is he sets a theological uh, stage and the foundation to say, because this is true spiritually, now this is how it plays itself out in your lives. And so the first three chapters focuses on those spiritual truths. And then the last three chapters, Ephesians has six, is focused on the outworking of that, especially as it relates to us as a community of faith. And the reality is, it's funny because even though in a Western civilization, um, in a Western society, uh, individualism has become the dominant way that we identify ourselves, if we really stop and think about it, we are always influenced by social surroundings. My, you know, minor in in college was sociology. And so I, I was convinced and, and I understood how much social demographics and, and circumstances play themselves out, right? Like even down to the language that we speak, the family upbringing that we have, the birth order, none of those things are things that we selected. But even to get more granular to that, to get, just to get a little bit more specific, you ever notice how even there's music that you like or shows that you watch that initially you were hating on and you thought were kind of whack, but one of your friends was like, yo, give it a try, give it a try. And you're like, all right, I'm gonna give it a try. And then you're like hooked on it. Oh, am I the only one that that's happened to? Well, I'll just tell you my story about that because there was a show that, especially it was a reality show that I just disdained and I just thought, you know what? This is what's wrong with America and what's wrong with our society. And now I can't stop watching. It's called Married at First Sight. So here's, here's the basic premise of the show. There are these three experts that 
based on their, and I don't know how you become an expert at this, right? Like, because it's not like you get much practice. But they look at people's individual profiles and they pair them up and marry them. And the first time that the husband and wife see each other is on the wedding day. They don't know each other's name. They don't know what they look like. I mean, literally the dude is, like the, the groom comes out and shakes the hand and introduces himself to the family, right? And doesn't know anything about his spouse. The, the, the wife, the bride comes up the, uh, the aisle and like, they go, hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tanisha. And it's like, okay, nice to meet you. And so I thought this is a mockery of marriage. This is, this is just terrible idea. And then at the, at the way it works is they have eight weeks to, that they have to live together. And then after eight weeks, it's decision day. And on decision day, they have to independently decide if they're going to want to stay married. So it gets real interesting because somebody could say, yes, I want to stay married. And other person's like, no, I want a divorce. Right? Crazy, crazy idea. But it has become a family obsession. Uh, we watch uh, the, the season eight just ended and it was crazy. But, but by far, our favorite was a couple seasons ago, and a specific couple, Nate and Sheila. Oh, they went crazy, yo. It, it, was, it was wild. And specifically, it went around, so, because see, what, what ends up happening is when two people get married and they don't have, have never had conversation with each other, like, the, I, the process of them coming to, like, learn what is acceptable to the other person gets really interesting. So... Sheila had this male friend that she referred to as her best friend. And Nate had some, some feelings about that, right? Because already they really connected and they really bonded and they were like on the stage. So they have this party where they, where, you know, Nate gets to meet this best friend. And Nate's kind of like street. Nate was kind of like, you know, he was a little, had a little hood in him, right? <laughs> so, um, so he go, makes a beeline to the friend. It's like, uh, yo, what's up, man? How you doing? Uh-huh. So, um, so you Sheila's best, your best friend, huh? And the dude is like already intimidated. He's like, uh, yeah. He's like, um, so what that mean? <laughs> and, he, and, and the thing, and then they, it, it starts this whole controversy. They get into an argument and a fight. But, but here's the reality. There was this idea that's like, no, if you want to be in my wife's life, then you need to be in my life too. Like you can't just pick and choose and be like, you, we just gonna be like all up in each other's world and, I, and you don't make any effort to get to know me as well. Like that's not, that, does, that doesn't work that way. And so there's this interesting concept of, of tension that happens. But here's the thing, as we look at that and we go, wow, that's crazy. Like imagine that, imagine being in a, a, a marriage and your spouse has a best friend of the, op- the opposite gender that you don't even you know, no. And yet, oftentimes, increasingly, we are wanting a relationship with Jesus, but not having anything to do with his wife, the church. Increasingly, Increasingly, uh, the Barner Group, which is a group that studies faith and faith trends in America, they found that 81% of people agree with this statement. I love Jesus, but not the church. And what they mean by that is not just a sense of like an overall opinion, but it's like, look, I can have a relationship that's tight with Jesus. I, I, I like the idea of who he is. I, I want to follow him. But that church stuff, I don't want to have nothing to do with that. Now, I have some empathy to this position because the reality is 
church can be pretty jacked up. Like, you know, and, and in, in general, uh, Generation Z and millennials have a um, suspicion toward institutions, a suspicion that's been built over the course of seeing government corruption, church scandals, family breakdown, and all of the things that say authority and structure and, and be a part of this institution have been signs of failure and erosion and decay. And people go, I don't want to be a part of that. I just, just give me Jesus and lead a church out of it. But here's a question. Is it possible? Can you have a flourishing Christian life without the church? Is that even a way that God has set it up? Well, I think it's kind of like asking the question I, to a married person. I, I love you and I, and I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't want to have anything to do with your spouse or your kids or your family. And so somehow, some way, we have to get to the place of reckoning with this. But it is a significant question. Last week, we introduced the idea that God did not just save me, but he saved we. And in that, what we saw and what we discovered was the fact that central to the identity and how God made us is to make us people who were social, who wanted to be in relationship with each other is in addition to us being in relationship with him. In fact... Part of what it means to be in relationship with God, as we'll see, is to be in relationship with each other. The two go hand in hand. But, and yet at the same time, the reality is there are these challenges. And especially the number one issue that people face that caused them to go, yo, just give me Jesus and not the church, is conflict. Is, is usually situations where you've experienced some type of hurt or woundedness in a church context that makes you go, you know what, I'm just done with that. Somebody was judgmental toward you. Maybe you were exploring, you know, your faith. You weren't necessarily a part of things and, and, and you were just trying to just check things out. And then the person just had a judgmental spirit or attitude and you were like, whoa, that just t- took me out. And all of a sudden it's like, you know what, I'm done with that. I'm done with these Christian people. Maybe that was you. Or maybe there was a circumstance or a scenario where um, somebody lied on you. And, and you're like, this is supposed to be a, a, a Christian's like, What's going on? And so there are many reasons and situations that occur that cause us to have a suspicion and a sense of disinterest. But the reality that we talked about last week, and we're going to press into this again because this is where the text takes us, is that conflict is not an accident, but it's an assignment. In addition to that, conflict, hear me now, is not an obstacle, but it's an opportunity. Conflict is not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. An opportunity, an opportunity for what? I'm glad you asked. Let's go into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and you'll see the answer. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, in biblical interpretation, you know, you look at the therefore and you want to know what is the therefore, therefore, right? 
Yeah. So what you do is this therefore is this conjunction that's connecting everything that he said in those first three chapters to this thought that he's having now. So he's saying that in light of the fact that as we talked about last week, what he reveals in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that Jesus d- destroyed and tore apart the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility that caused barriers and boundaries to come up between Jew and Gentile, between men and women, between poor and rich, all of those boundaries. He said are completely demolished because of what Jesus accomplished in creating peace. He says, therefore, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Now, this phrase prisoner in the Lord, like this is not like he's not being melodramatic. Like Paul is literally in prison right now for his faith because he's preaching the gospel and in, a, in a space in which that was, un, not only was it unpopular, but it threatened the idols of the empire of Rome because you see the Roman empire wanted you to worship their Caesar as the king. And they would actually say that Caesar was king of kings and lord of lords. And then Paul is like, no, actually Caesar is just a man. But there was a man who walked among us who died in the, in our, on, the, on the cross for, in our place. And that man is actually, the God man. His name is Jesus. So Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not Caesar. And as a result of that, they threw him in prison. So he says, look, as a prisoner in the Lord, I urge you to live worthy of the calling. Somebody say live worthy. This word live worthy, and depending on the translation you have, it might say walk worthy. It comes from the Greek word parapeteo, which means a continual action of movement kind of like walking, continual movement. So it's this aspect of sometimes that word is translated live, sometimes it's translated walk, depending on the context. But he's basically saying have a continual practice, a continual habit of walking worthy of the calling you have received. And that is an interesting statement. Because he's saying your, your calling that you've received is up here. It is a high calling. It is one we just sang about, that we're no longer slaves, that we have been freed from sin, that we have been freed from shame, that, that we've been given a family, like all of these things that we're rich. And he's like, that's your high calling. And now he says, walk worthy of that calling, which gives the implication that it's possible to have a calling and not walk worthy of it. It's possible to live in the cheap seats, but you got a ticket to the front row. Just depending on, do you decide to walk up the steps or down the steps when you get into the arena? And so he's saying, walk worthy or live worthy of the calling that you have received. And the fascinating thing is, look at the immediate context of what he breaks down, how you walk worthy. Notice that it doesn't start with some memorization of theological ideas or truths. Look at what it starts. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Don't you see that one of the, what Paul is, he's predicting and anticipating the fact that the primary challenge that you're going to have, that I'm going to have to walking worthy of our calling is bearing with other people. (laughs) He's like, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take humility. It's going to take gentleness. It's going to take patience to bear with one another. That word bear there, it has this sense of enduring. It, it, it assumes that there's already something about the other person that just rubbed you the wrong way. It's just something that there's an irritation there. And he's saying, bear with one another, look, in love. 
not with an eye roll, not with an attitude, not with, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to let you know that I don't like this that I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway because of Jesus' name. He's saying, no, no. Bear with one another, how? In love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is how you walk worthy of the calling. You see, what started as his indicatives or, or the ideas of what to believe has now moved into the imperative of what we are supposed to do. In other words, what we believe should impact what we do. And this is key to living in community. And the specific thing here is that word calling. I just want to draw some attention to that. Because calling means the divine invitation to embrace salvation in the kingdom of God. That is a calling. It is it's the idea, like when we get a phone call, it's, it's an invitation. And someone, you know, is calling you to do something or to have a conversation with them. And he's saying the divine invitation is to embrace salvation in the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God part is essential. The salvation part says this is how to be reconciled with your creator, with the one which initially we're born in a state of alienation and distance from, and now we've been brought near. That's what the salvation part is. And then in the kingdom of God is to say, but wait a minute, there's more. It doesn't end there. God has given us work to do, and his plan is for his kingdom to be established, that kingdom of humility, of patience and peace. We're going to get a little bit more into that. But the basic bottom line is we are called to endure difficult people in the church. That's what we're called to do. That's part of what it means. And part of the problem is we have developed in our culture what we call cancel culture. <laughs> you know cancel culture. Somebody come out the side of their mouth and say something crazy or do something crazy or something comes up that they've done in the past and you go, that's it, they canceled. I'm done with you, you're over, it's a wrap. <laughs> but I often wonder if someone were to take a point and period of our lives and put that on blast, how many of us would be worthy of being canceled? Now, there are limits and obviously everything has to be taken in moderation, right? There are things that people do that cause them to be no longer, you know, susceptible or eligible of having a platform to influence people. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is that tendency that we have, you know how it is. It's like, oh, somebody did something, I'm cut. they cut off immediately. That that tendency is the absolute opposite of enduring. So what Paul is absolutely saying is that, look, these are the truths about what you're called to but you have to now live it out. Or this is how my mom used to say it. Especially when we used to go shopping, right? When she was going shopping, I was like nine years old and the last thing I wanted to do was go into a clothing store. But before we got into that store, we would have a little conversation. And she would say, now look, I'm gonna go shopping and I'm gonna need you to act like you know. And what that was, was instructions for me to live up to the calling that I have been called to. Because if I didn't, then there were some consequences. So what Paul is saying here, that to live worthy is to act like you know. Somebody tell somebody, act like you know. <laughs> and to act like you know means to actually endure with other people. That's the first chunk. But wait, there's more. It gets better. You're like, oh man, that already? 
But then he goes on. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. Thank you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now, again, little biblical interpretation nugget. Whenever you see repetition, that usually means that the author is trying to call your attention to something that's as important. Do you see anything that's repeated over and over again in this verse? Let's count. When we say just one together, I just want you to say one, right? There is body and spirit, just as you were called to hope at your calling, Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Seven times in two verses, he's bringing our attention to this idea of one. He's saying, look, if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, then you have to realize that that has to take context and take center is the fact of our oneness together. And once again, he's using the very being of God, as we did last time, as we explored last week, to give us a picture of what that oneness is supposed to look like. Because he's invoking the very triune nature of God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as our basis for unity. Look, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were call to one hope and you're calling in one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. He's saying just as God is three beings in one perfectly in harmony and unity, be one with each other. This might help. So basically what Paul is presenting to us is that if we want to get closer to God, then we have to get closer to people and the church in particular. And as we get closer to the church, we get closer to God and all of those things work together. So I need to get closer to people in order to help me get closer to God. And as I get closer to God, I get closer to other people. He begins to break down the walls of hostility that I have built up because of wounds that I've experienced in my life. And those become the things that actually propel me to greater love people. Because if God is love, and this is what he's saying here, then love shares itself and permeates and goes into other spaces and bears with one another and forgives one another and, and, and decides to be gentle and patient just as God was patient and gentle with us. So to be in Christ is to be in the church. To be in church is to be in Christ. Now, what I mean by that is not to physically be in a church building, but to be, belong to and identified with the universal church that God has called us to belong to is to be in Christ. You can't have one without the other. If I am in Christ and I am part of his body, the church, if I am part of his, if I am in his body of the church, then guess what? I am in Christ. Those two work hand in hand. You don't become transformed into a new person simply through a personal devotional life. You need family for that. You need community for that. Walking worthy means embracing our oneness. It means embracing our interconnectedness. It means embracing our unity. Paul goes on. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to the people. Oh, this is good. I got to take a break for this one. Hold on. Oh, man, wait till you see what's about to go down here. So, all right, he's saying now grace, right? Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not a gift of yourselves, but uh, it's not a work of yourselves, but a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Then he says, where is workmanship? So this grace is a free gift. He says, now this grace was given. Grace is a gift that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, now when he says for it says, that is an indication he's quoting. He's actually quoting Psalm 68, verse 6. And this is what it says. When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. This is, now, there's an interesting uh, difference in, this, in the translation that Paul uses, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the actual translation that it appears in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says that he, uh, the, when he ascended on high, the men gave gifts to him. And in this translation, it says he took captive, captives and he gave gifts to the people. Well, which one is it? Did God give gifts to the people or did the people give gifts to him? Yes. <laughs> the answer is both, depending on which aspect you're looking at it. God gave gifts to the people, but here's the, here's the historical context. When kings and victors would go into battle and take and get victory from another foreign nation, they would oftentimes do two things. They would take the captives of the warriors, the soldiers that lost the battle, they would tie them up and they would, as they went into the city, like in Rome, they would parade them through the city and everyone would cheer and say, look at how our king defeated our foes. They would take captives captive. The other thing that would happen is they would actually collect and gather all of the valuable things from that defeated nation and then distribute them to the people. So what he's saying here is that when he ascended on high, when Jesus resurrected from the grave, when he ascended from the depths of the earth, that he emerged victorious. And as a victorious king, now those uh, demonic beings, the, the evil spirits, all of the things that oppressed us are now in bondage to him. And now he's distributed gifts to the people as a sign of his victory. Oh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that because what that means is Christ as victor is the king and he's saying, I'm inviting you to be a part of this kingdom work. Look at the next verse. And it says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until, there it is again, we all reach unity in the faith. And in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity as a stature measured by Christ's fullness. I ain't got time to get through all of this, but let me just try to give you a picture. So basically what he's saying is here's a rubric, here's a, a category to understanding all of the gifts that God was given. Now, in all of humanity, what's called common grace, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, those who identify as God's people and those who don't. God has given talents and abilities, unique insights, uh, beauty, grace to everybody on the face of the earth. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But when you get connected and linked into his kingdom, into his agenda, into his perspective, he now then takes the natural abilities that he's given you, sanctifies them, energizes them, charges them in a different way and say, now go run the play that I've given you as a church to build my kingdom. He 
categorizes those things in these five categories that were essential in the church and now to us. Apostles. Apostles are people who tend to be, uh, they tend to be pioneers. They tend to start stuff like businesses or, or they start things and, and they have this kind of apostolic uh, type, type of vibe to them. Prophets are our truth tellers and our poets and our artists and our creatives and people who tend to say hard things that need to be said. And then he goes on, evangelists. Evangelists are our recruiters. They're those people that get you to do stuff and watch stuff that you didn't normally think you would ever watch or do because they just kind of have that kind of personality to them. And then pastors are those caregivers who actually care and shepherd the flock and, they, and, they, and they're concerned. And teachers are those who, who just have this way of understanding knowledge and explaining it. Now, that's a broad category that is real regardless of where you are. But in the church, there has specific roles and functions. So Paul was an apostle, and that meant that he started churches wherever he went. And the apostles that we know as the 12 had specific responsibility because of their role of being walking with Jesus to actually write scripture, write his words now, and reveal those things. Now, we're not apostles. Nobody's an apostle in that sense anymore. That's a wrap. That's done. But there is a sense in which we we have been given gifts and abilities to continue the work. And here's the thing. Look at what he says. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. The whole point of these things isn't to go and look and go, man, look at how he's teaching. And he's always sweaty and he's just so crazy and yelling all the time. That's amazing. I need to bring somebody to that. The whole idea is that those who have these gifts, look at what it says, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The whole point is that the whole body is equipped to do the work that God has set out for us to do to build up the body of Christ until we attain, we reach unity. This is, my, this is one of those mind-blowing verses in the Bible for me. Because basically when I read this, I discovered something. I discovered that what this is saying is that I can't be all of who I am without you. No matter how hard I try by myself, no matter how much I st lock myself in a room and memorize scripture and read the Bible, I could never be all of who I am and was supposed to be without you. Amen. And then he flips it and says the other thing is true too. You can never be all of who you were meant to be without the church. We are interdependent and needed with each other and that. And look, we won't get to maturity until we all get there together in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's heavy. That's saying that there's parts that are missing in us, and we see this all together. In organizations, we see it because if an organization doesn't have a recruiter, guess what? Its labor pool is going to die out. If there's nobody around to say hard things, then people are just gonna surround them with yes men or yes women and just no one's gonna tell them the truth that needs to be told. There are, there's these, these are just interwoven truths in the fabric of how God made stuff that he's revealing right here. So here's the point. We are blessed with unique abilities to be a blessing. We're giving gifts, and the more gifts you've been given, the more abilities you've been given, the more responsibility that we have in order to share those with other people. <laughs> you know, one way that, I, you know, by now y'all know I like to watch a lot of movies, and um, one way in which I see this is, you know, one big one's coming up, Avengers, right? Now, a key person in this is Nick Fury. My man, Nick. Now, Nick is the thing is, he don't have any superpowers. But all he knows is that in order for us to protect Earth, we need to recruit and we need to amass Earth's mightiest warriors to defend us against 
foes that on their own, neither of them could defend. Because you see, by themselves, they can't take on the Thanos. By themselves, they can't take, they don't have the ability, but when they come together and when someone brings them together, so Nick is operating out of that apostolic vibe when he's like, look, I got to put them some folks together in that recruiting sense. Now, real quick, I just want to give a plug because you might be sitting here thinking like, yo, I wonder what my gifts are. Like what? I don't even know. How, how do I even assess this? A few years ago, we created a, a website link bridgechurchnyc.com forward slash serve. And it has a spiritual gift assessment tool. It's just a tool that can be used to kind of help you discover what your gifts are, you know, spiritual gifts as, as we're called. And we, and we just offer that to you as a way of just being able to get a sense of where you might fit in and where, what you might be able to serve in what capacity in. And there's this amazing way when we serve other people with our gifts it has this way of blessing us as well. Living worthy means using your gifts to serve. That's what living worthy means. That's, that's how it looks. That's how it plays itself out. Let's look at verse 14, because he goes on. He says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. He goes back to this issue of unity again and says, okay, this is the application of that. You won't be influenced and persuaded by every fad, every trendy idea that emerges and picks itself up. But, but we'll be able to together understand and see what, what God's plan is. And we won't be deceived by that. And look at what he says. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every every way into him who is the head. Say, speak the truth in love. Now, again, this is one of those tendencies that we have that we, our natural tendency is to split that phrase in two. We got those who tend to like to speak the truth, and then we got those who like to love. Those who like to speak the truth are those truth tellers that kind of like, look, I, I said it, I meant it, you own it, that's what it is, right? Like, that's just it. I don't care how you responded to what I had to say because what I had to say was true. Now, there is merit to speaking truth, for sure. We have to hear hard things. But if you don't have that in love part, then you're just crushing people. Someone put it this way. Truth without love kills. Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills Love without truth lies. If I'm not committed to the truth and I just want everybody to like, I just want you to feel good about yourself that I'm going to say when you come out and you go like, yo, what do you think about what I'm wearing? And I'm like, that's nice. Cause, and I'm gonna have you out there looking crazy, right? Cause, I, Cause I'm not committed to truth enough. Or I might come out and say, that's hideous. That's the most terrible thing I've ever seen in my life. Burn it. <laughs> And in that case, I'm not helping somebody out either. I had to learn this in my own journey of leadership. Uh, there was, uh, I used to uh, lead bands of, of musicians and we would go and do concerts and stuff. And this one summer, there was a super talented singer we had. Her name was Rachel and she was amazingly talented. But she had this problem she had, where she would be late all the time. Not only was she late, but she kind of had a strong personality that intimidated me that made me not want to confront her about the lateness. So that was my own issue, right? 
But because of that issue, uh, what, but after the, the, the time ended, we had this one concert and I had to like recruit the best of the best and we were going back and forth about if we should. He's like, you know what, I'm gonna accept her. I'm, 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 I'm gonna give her another shot. So we, we had, I mean, performing in front of 5,000 people and you know, we have rehearsal the day before and she, everybody's flying in that day. She missed her flight because she was late. And at this point now I'm irritated because I'm like, I gave you another shot. So I say, hey, she gets in. And, and then the one thing that frustrates you when you're a timely person, when people come in late and they act like nothing happened, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? And then they have like a bag of fast food, which indicates that they took a stop on the way. And you're like, oh, I didn't eat anything because I wanted to be on time. And now you're rolling up, hey, and you got a bag. Not part of the message. So, so then I confront her and I go, um, you know, I got to tell you, I was planning on not actually even inviting you to this because of your lateness. And I decided to give you another chance, but I am really frustrated. And I think this is probably the last time I'm going to work with you. She breaks out into tears. And she says, um, I wish you would have told me I didn't know that you felt this way. And in that moment, I realized I had failed her as a leader because I didn't speak the truth in love in the process. This is the first time that I ever said anything once I was at my limit. When we don't speak the truth in love, when we don't take the time to have hard conversations with people, then we end up limiting their growth and our growth. That was a lesson I've never forgotten. And I'm like, I'm never going to just, you know, oh, someone's intimidating me. That's my problem. I have to work through that and just say what I, God has called me to say as a leader. Amen? Amen. <sighs> Equipping the saints for ministry in every way. So look at the... the the implication of this is, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. And I like this verse because this is kind of like your little outlet verse. Because he does say, if it's possible, right? There are some people you try to work with and you try to speak to and they, it ain't possible. It ain't going nowhere. And at that point, you can move on and just go, I did what I could do. I've confronted them, I left them know, I tried, I was patient, I was loving, and this is just toxic and I move on. This is not an invitation to be a doormat but it is an invitation to live up to the calling that we're called to. Speaking, living, worth, living worthy means speaking the truth in love. It means speaking the truth in love. Well, the last verse that we're gonna look at, verse 16, he kind of wraps this whole thing up. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Paul is saying is that the, the, our, Jesus is the head and we are a body of Christ and in this body that it is a complex system. Like when you look at the, our, the, our just physical bodies, they are complex systems of systems, right? We have a cardiovascular system, but the cardiovascular system is dependent on the nervous system, which is a whole entire different system. All of, either of those systems are depending on our digestive system, getting the fuel that we need in order to live. And, and all of these systems are, they, you, you can't just separate one and go, well, the nervous system is shut down today, but I'm the cardiovascular, so it ain't on me. You know what I mean? Like, it don't work that way. We're not a functioning body. And what he's saying is that we're all so interconnected. And you know what we call it when one part of a body decides to do its own thing and grow at its own rate and do what it wants to do separate from what the rest of the body is doing? It's called cancer. That's what cancer is. 
It's just like skin cells that decided to just grow at a rapid rate on their own, completely indifferent to what the needs of the whole body were, or some other cell, or another type of cell. It's destructive. But when it, we see each other in the context of the body, it's different. It reminds me of a show I used to grow, watch growing up. Now, in this show, there were five different pilots of, uh, of, of anthropomorphic lions that would be like mechanical. It was called Voltron, right? Now, Voltron had these lions, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the lions, they were bad by themselves. Like there's a human being in that lion controlling. You can see he got lasers that shooting out the tail. This is not, not your ordinary lion. It was, a, it was a beast. But usually by the 25th minute of that 30-minute episode, they would encounter a foe that would tear the little lion up by themselves. And my favorite was the red lion, but it was like, yo, even this ultimate foe, red lion couldn't, couldn't battle. So then it was time. You know what it was time to do? It was time to form Voltron. And it was like, din, 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 din. it was like form, leg, and leg, form, body. And then it was like, all of a sudden the lions formed a being and then they would hold up the sword. And then when they held up the sword, it was time to do battle and nobody could beat it. Well, God is saying to us, it's time to form the body. When we put the word of God, which is our sword above all, we come together and form arms, legs, body together as Christ, as the head, then we are able to defeat any foe that comes our way. This is what the kingdom is, and that foe is ultimately evil that wants to destroy other people and destroy our own lives and to destroy the world. And all of these things, as we promote spiritual truth, as we promote justice, all of these things combine together because that's ultimately the word for flourishing or this aspect of shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, has to do with wholeness and what it looks like for us to be whole people, healthy people. And you cannot be a healthy Christian without participation in the local church. That's what Paul is saying here. Well, what is your next step to walk worthy of your calling? Where Paul is saying here is, okay, it's, an, it's okay to have ideas, right? But, but, but they need to be worked out in our lives. And for some of us, there are people that we have not bared, born well with. We've not been patient. We've not been gentle. And there's some relationships that have been fractured and hurt as a result of that. For others, there's just a sense of like, for whatever reason, there's just a disenchantment, a disengagement with this thing called the church. And it's like, I'm done with that. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't, like, I'm the, I'm the groom and the church is the bride and, and we're one. And, and, and so I'm inviting you to, to restore relationship. Try again. I know you've been hurt. I know it's been hard. But trust me, you're better together than you are by yourself. There are aspects of who you are that will never be fully discovered or fully lived out unless it's done inside of community. You can't get access to those gifts that other people have been given in order to be on mission for a purpose and a calling that is actually gives meaning to everything else that we do in life outside of this body. Would you consider taking that next step today? That next step, right? Because to live worthy is to walk worthy. And walking is just taking 
a next step. Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, we just come before you to stay. We ask that you would um, help us take the next step. Show us what that next step is. Help us to see that you made us for community and not just for ourselves. God, I pray for people here who've been hurt, hurt by family, hurt by people who call themselves Christians. I pray that there would be relationship, that healing would happen, that ultimately people can see you in the spite of that mess and be drawn to you and know that you have good things in store, plans to bless them, not to harm them. Yeah, would you speak to us today and help us take the next step? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.